0: A few years ago, my oldest daughter Lilia was uh, asking me some questions about Easter, and she she said, "Dad, what is Easter all about?" Now, if you ask a pastor what Easter is all about, you better get ready for a long answer, right? So, so I said, "Lilia, Easter is about Jesus and what He did, and how He rose from the dead, and how He overcame Satan and sin and death and the grave." And I'm like getting my preach on. I'm like getting ready to go, and I'm getting ready to take an offering from her. And uh, <laughs> and she she says to me, "No, no, 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 Dad, I I know all that. I know all that." Uh, what do the, what is the bunny and the chocolate and the candies and the eggs? What does that have to do with Easter? I was like, I, I don't really know. I don't know the tradition on that. I don't know why we started doing that. And she goes, it's weird that we do that. And so I saw an opportunity, and I was like, oh, so you guys don't want that stuff anymore? Like, you know, it's good on the budget. And uh, she quickly corrected me. She's like, no, 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 we want it. When we don't get it. We don't understand it, but we still want it. What is Easter all about? And today, all around the world, uh, people just like you are gathering in places just like this, and they're gathering around a story, a really remarkable, unforgettable story. And what I want us to do in our time together this morning is I want us to take a close look at this story one more time. Maybe you've heard it many times. Maybe you've never heard it before, but this story has the power within it to shape our hearts and change our lives and so I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 24 I'm going to read to you the first 12 verses of this chapter and it begins like this it says but on the first day of the week which was Sunday Sunday morning at early dawn they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared these are the women who have taken the spices to complete the burial process for the body of Jesus Christ who was crucified just a couple of days earlier Verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. The eleven were the remaining apostles, disciples of Jesus, and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. A bunch of women. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they, the men, did not believe them. Verse 12, but Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He had to look into this cave where it had been cut out. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So what do we do with this story? And this morning, I want to suggest that there's two things that we have to do with this story. The first thing is we have to question the story. We do. We have to question the resurrection story. Let's be honest. This story is far too unusual far too bizarre, far too supernatural to accept it just at face value and not ask any questions about it. But also this, this story is too widely accepted, far too widely accepted and believed to ignore it without taking a closer look at it. And also this story is far too significant in its impact on history and on millions and millions of lives to consider or to not consider what actually is at stake in this story. Now, those of you that know me know that I love a good meal as much as anybody, and I'm super excited about lunch. Anybody else really excited about lunch? I got a leg of lamb sitting in a crock pot at home. Whoa, we got applause for lamb and not Jesus. That's awesome. (laughs) That's kind of my heart, too. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, A a leg of lamb that I I seasoned overnight with salt and pepper and rosemary, and, and then this morning I put it in a crock pot with a bunch of root vegetables and some red cooking wine, and I put it in there, and for six hours it's slow cooking. Oh man, I've been thinking about it while I've been here this morning. And uh, I love a good meal. I love a good meal. In fact, some people would say, David, you, you give too much thought actually to your meals. And I say, what's, what's not normal about planning your entire day around your meals? Doesn't everybody not do that? Doesn't everybody sort of, you know, as they're eating breakfast, planning out their lunch? That's kind of how I am. And so uh, I really think about the meals, but there's two times in my life when the stakes are super high as it relates to my meals. And the first one is when I'm traveling. You know what I'm talking about. When you go to a city that you're excited to eat in, New York, Chicago, Boston, Seattle, and you got one meal, oh, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. I do all the research I can do. I'm on Yelp, I'm on Zagat, I'm on all these different sites. I'm like tormented. If you ever want to see me paralyzed, but with, with fear, it's when I'm trying to decide where am I going to spend my one meal, because the stakes are so high, I only get one shot at it. But the other time that the stakes are higher than normal is when I'm dieting. When I'm dieting, when I'm counting calories, every calorie is like a little gold nugget to me. Every single one counts. Every single one matters, and I want to make every single one count, and so I'm strategic. As I'm eating breakfast, I'm thinking, how many calories have I left myself for lunch? And as I'm eating lunch, I'm thinking, how many calories have I left myself for dinner? So the stakes are are pretty high. When it comes to this story, this story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the stakes could not be higher. And the reason why is simply this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of two things. It's either the greatest hoax ever, or it's the greatest hope ever. There's no middle ground. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is either the greatest hoax, it's the greatest lie, it's the greatest joke, it's the greatest scam ever, or it's the greatest hope for you and for me. There's way too much at stake to not question this story. And if you think it's the greatest hope this morning and you're wrong, then at the end of your life, you'll look back and you realize you've built your life on the wrong thing and you'll feel like a fool. But if you're here this morning and you think, it's the greatest hoax, I don't actually think this happened, and you're wrong, then there's actually a lot at stake for you too, both in this life and in the next. And so we have to consider this story and we have to question it. And as we take some time this morning to question the resurrection story, the historicity of it, the validity of it, the authenticity of it, we have to notice two details in Luke's account here uh, that actually support, in a surprising way, the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the first thing is this, who were the first witnesses? The first witnesses were women. Now, Jesus was crucified on Friday. We remembered it this past Friday, on Good Friday. He, most, most people believe he hung on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. when he died. He was taken down from the cross. He would have been buried soon after. He was buried just before uh, the Sabbath began. Sabbath, for the Jewish religion, begins at sunset on, sa- on Friday and goes through sunset on Saturday. And so they take Jesus to the tomb. One of the other gospel accounts tells us that the woman followed and they knew where the tomb was. But at that point, the Sabbath had begun. And if you know Jewish uh, religious law, they couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. So they couldn't complete the burial process. So they went back home and they waited for the Sabbath to end. And the Sabbath ended at sunset on Saturday, but they weren't gonna go then because then it was dark. This, of course, is way before electricity. So they're not gonna go at night. So they get up Sunday morning at early dawn and they go. These women set off to the tomb as early as they can. And the woman get to the tomb, they discover it's empty, they have this angelic encounter, and then they return and they tell everyone, now, why is it so significant that it's woman? And why does that actually support the reliability of this account? At this, t- at this point in history and in this particular culture, women had low status. The testimony of a woman, sorry for saying it this way, but this is the way it was back then, the testimony of a woman wasn't worth anything. It wasn't actually admissible in court. A woman's testimony was not admissible in Roman court or in the Jewish courts. And so there are people who say, "Well, this whole story is made up." The disciples, they were disappointed that Jesus was killed, and they said, "Let's keep this thing going." let's make up this story. And let's make up a story that He rose from the dead." And so they, they stole his body they did all. And so they, there are people who actually believe that, that the story was made up so that it was made to establish a religion or to advance a movement. But here's what we have to notice: if you're going to make up a story, you would never have included this detail. You never would have made the woman the first witnesses to the empty tomb. It actually, back then, it would have hurt your case. It wouldn't have helped your case. The only reason that this detail would be included in the historian Luke's account is if it actually happened that way. So the first witnesses were women. But the other thing we need to notice in Luke's story here is the response of the men. Did you notice the first response of the men? It said that these words seemed to them as an idle tale and they did not believe them. Now listen, this is not a flattering snapshot of the disciples of Jesus. They've spent three years with him day and night. They've heard everything he's got to say. They've seen everything he's, they've seen him raise people from the dead. He actually told them that he would do this, that he would die and that he would rise from the dead. All this they knew. And then the women come back and say, the tomb is empty, and we saw angels, and they said this, and he's risen, he's alive. And they don't believe him. These men don't believe him. This is not a very very great moment for them. And what we need to notice is that these same unbelieving men eventually become the leaders of the early church. Now, again, this content here, it's way too counterproductive for it to be made up. You know, if they got together after Jesus died, and they're like, let's put together a story that's convincing for people. All right, let's, let's do this. Let's have the women be the first witnesses, and let's have all the leaders not believe them. Peter, John, James, someone would have been like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. No one's ever gonna believe us. That's ridiculous. So again, we have counterproductive, this couldn't have been made up. This is a terrible start for a movement. Uh, and keep in mind, by the way, that Luke's gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mark's gospel was was written first and circulated first, then Matthew's and Luke's, and John's came later, but these gospel accounts were publicly circulated, widely read, were still known, while all of these men were probably still alive. 30 to 40 years later, these men were still alive, and these stories were still around about them while they were trying to lead the early church movement. Now, Recently, I was talking to a friend uh, who I graduated from high school with. I graduated in 1996 and uh, pre-internet, pre-social media, and we were kind of saying to each other, man, thank God social media didn't exist when we were in high school. (laughs) Anybody like my age, every now and then you're like, God, thank you that there's not an internet trail of every dumb thing I thought and said and posted uh, when I was a teenager, it doesn't exist. This poor generation, we know all the dumb things you do and we always will because it's not going anywhere. But this, this my generation, we, we didn't have that that, that, that trail that was sort of chasing us down the, the rest of our lives. And I kind of think of these gospel accounts as sort of like this, the apostles' internet history catching up with him. <laughs> Peter would be up there preaching in the early church and somebody in the back would be like, hold on, didn't I read about this dude yesterday? Isn't this the guy who denied Jesus three times? Isn't he the guy who didn't believe the woman when they came back from the tomb? You see, this is not good for them, these men. These men were the leaders of the early church, and it was already circulating while they were leading. Now, by the way, one other thing that this means is that this story was circulated, known, read, talked about, and discussed way too soon for it to be completely made up, way too soon for it to be a complete legend. This is only 30 to 40 years later, It takes hundreds or thousands of years for a legend to be created, why? Because everyone that was there originally has to be gone. They have to be dead. Otherwise they can say, no, that's not what happened. And yet 30 to 40 years after this event, everybody's talking about it widely, it's widely accepted. Now, what are we to make of the response of these men? Philip Yancey, an author who wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew, he said this about this, he said, People who discount the resurrection of Jesus tend to portray the disciples in one of two ways, either gullible rubes with a weakness for ghost stories or they're shrewd conspirators who conceived a resurrection plot as a way to jumpstart their new religion. But the Bible and history paints a distinctly different picture. You know, on one hand, these disciples, they were as surprised as anyone. They should have saw it coming, but they didn't see it coming. They were surprised, they were shocked, they were, they were skeptics, and on the other hand, not only were they as surprised as anyone, but they also were scared as anyone. When Jesus was crucified, they all ran. They all hid by the run. they didn't stick around. They took off, why? Because when you see the leader of your movement get crucified by the Romans, you're thinking, am I next? And so they're hiding, they're, they're not brave men waiting for their opportunity to launch a religion or a movement. One of the commentaries I read said, the apostles were not men poised on the brink of belief and courage, needing only the shadow of an excuse before launching forth into a proclamation of resurrection or a movement. They were utterly skeptical, and they were afraid. And when we consider the first response of these men that they didn't believe, what we really need to notice and what we really need to pay attention to is who these men became and what they did with the rest of their lives. Because every single one of them was radically transformed after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Every single one of them gave the rest of their lives to preaching and teaching the gospel. Everywhere they went, all over the known world, talking about Jesus who was crucified and risen from the dead on the third day. And the vast majority of them, all of them except for maybe John, one of them, actually was martyred for teaching and preaching that. Every single one of them gave their lives this radical transformation. Now we have to, we have to ask the question, what transformed them? Why did they change from these scared, skeptical men who wouldn't believe the report of the woman to risk-taking world changers? And the most sensible, logical explanation for the radical change from scared, clueless followers to bold, risk-taking world changers who turned the known world upside down and who died for their faith and died for the claims that Jesus died and rose again is that it all actually happened. That's the only explanation that makes any sense. If it was a lie, If it was a hoax, they certainly would have known it was. They would have been the source of it. And nobody dies for something they know to be a lie. Nobody gives their life for something they know is a lie. At some point, when they're about to be burned at the stake, when they're about to be stoned, when Peter was about to be crucified upside down, which is how history tells us he was martyred, at some point, one of them would have said, hold on, hold on, hold on. Put the torches away, right? Put the nails away. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's just a funny joke, right? Ha-ha, right? Like at some point, somebody would have bowed, but not a single one of them did. And they didn't do this sort of with their arms locked together. They did this all over the world, traveling everywhere, giving their life for this story, saying it's true. And I saw the resurrected Jesus Christ and it's transformed my life. And so the best explanation is that this happened. There are well-documented accounts of atheists and and unbelievers who set out to actually disprove the resurrection of Jesus. They they search through archaeology and they search through history to disprove it, only to eventually place their faith and trust in Jesus and realize the evidence stacks up. This really happened. Now, before I get to my second point this morning, let me pause and just ask you a question. For you this morning, have you honestly questioned the resurrection? Some of you grew up in church and you've just believed it. You didn't realize there's actually reasons to believe it. There's actually historical evidence for the resurrection. But have you, those of you that maybe haven't considered it much, have you honestly questioned it? Have you looked at the resurrection? There's too much at stake to ignore this. There's too much at stake to just say it's just a sort of a myth. It's a cute story. It's, it's metaphorical. It means something, but it didn't literally happen. There's too much at stake. But the other thing that you have to ask yourself this morning is, am I avoiding the question that matters most when it comes to Christianity, or am I rejecting Christianity on lesser grounds, on other grounds? Is what's keeping me from faith not this question, but lesser questions. Because, you know, most people decide what they're going to believe, what their worldview is going to be, what their religion is going to be, often based on what their family believed, right? That's very common. Or they they, they look into it for themselves and they decide this, I like this, I don't like this, I'll take this part of this religion and I'll take this part of this religion. This is kind of our culture today. We're very pluralistic and syncretistic and we like to pull stuff together and sort of form our own religion. I'll take this and I'll take that and I like this and I don't like that. Most people kind of shape their beliefs that way but what is especially challenging about Christianity maybe even irritating is that it's based on an actual historical event so what it means is this the question before you this morning is not do I like this story do I like the Bible do I like Christians do I like the church do I like what Jesus taught those are important questions but that's not the question before you this morning the question before you is this did this story happen is it true And if it's true, it changes everything. And if it's not true, move on. What's the point? Tim Keller says it this way in his book, The Reason for God. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If someone predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, we should pay attention. We should listen. We have to question the resurrection. Secondly, this morning, not only do we have to question the resurrection, we have to notice the question in the resurrection story. The question in the resurrection story. And it was right there for you in verse 5. The angels say to the woman, why do you seek the living among the dead? That's the question in this story. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, in its immediate context, that morning, what it meant was, what are you guys doing here looking for Jesus? Why are you in a graveyard looking for him? Don't you remember what he said? He's alive. Why come to a graveyard looking for someone who is not dead? Last month, we had a... um, appreciation lunch for our ministry team members. We went over to the Flaming Grill and Buffet in Mattydale, this wonderful Chinese uh, buffet. And, and uh, we went over there and we, we, we just honored our team members. At Trinity, we just value empowering people. And we believe that every single one of you has gifts and abilities to serve and to really just be fully you, to connect and be you. We think that's a big part of who we are. And there's 115 people in our church who are leaders in different capacities doing different things to help us uh, have services like this. And we, we thank God for them. And we're at the Chinese buffet, and now listen, let me be honest, I know a thing or two about Chinese buffet. I've spent a fair amount of time at Chinese buffets. And what always cracks me up about Chinese buffet, I'm half Korean, so I like Asian food. So uh, what always cracks me up about Chinese buffet is that they obviously have food out for people who don't like the Chinese buffet. They have the whole section where it's like, for, for people who won't eat lo mein or generous sauce chicken, they have pizza and french fries and little fried little smiley face potato things and stuff like that. And I always look at that stuff and I'm always like, who comes to the Chinese buffet and eats that stuff? Now listen, if you were at that luncheon, I promise you, I didn't look at your plate, I wasn't judging you. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what anybody ate, so you're, there's no judgment in here. But for me, it doesn't make any sense looking for pizza in a Chinese buffet. And these angels are saying to these women, you're in the wrong spot. If you're looking for Jesus, you've come to the wrong place. Why do you seek the living among the dead? So that's what it meant that morning. But this question that the angels asked that lady, those ladies, it's actually a universal question that is before you and me this morning. It's the same question. Why do you and I seek the living among the dead? The truth is, is that everyone, every single one of us is seeking something. We're going after something. There's a professor of philosophy at Calvin College named James K.A. Smith, and he wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And in it, he says to be human, to be human, the essence of being human is to be animated by and oriented toward some vision of the good life. I'll say it again. To be human, is to be animated by, set in motion, driven, compelled, animated by and oriented toward, directed towards some vision of the good life. I think he's right, that we all have visions of the good life before is that we're we're running towards, we're chasing after. They, They drive us and they guide us. Right? They control us and they compel us at the exact same time. What is your vision of the good life? For some of you, your vision of the good life is me finishing so you can go have lunch. Right? Some, some of you are going to have lamb and some of you are going to have turkey and, and ham and, and, and different things. And So we all have visions of the good life and they're all different. Earlier this week, I was listening to a podcast by um, Malcolm Gladwell. He's a Canadian author, and he has a podcast. He has a couple podcasts, but this one's called Broken Records, and he talks to songwriters and artists, and he was, he was having a conversation with three Nashville female songwriters. They, someone You wouldn't know their names because they're not the artists, but they write the songs for the biggest artists. If I were to say the names of the artists, you would know them. And they were talking about what makes a good country song. What makes a good country song? And I was like, I-, I thought I knew, you know, three chords in the truth, right? That's a, that's a good country song. Um, but they said, one of the songwriters said this, we all really want the same thing. We just all have different ways of trying to get it. And what I heard her say was, we all want the good life. We just define it differently. And we chase after it differently. And we have different paths. And how do you know what your vision of the good life is? Well, where does the attention of your mind sort of drift to all the time? Where do the affections of your heart find their home? You're seeking the good life. And where do we find it? Well, we find it in all sorts of places. I'll give you some examples. Some people, the good life is their career. It's the next promotion. If I get that promotion, then my life will be perfect. For some people it's achievements, it's accomplishing things, it's success. Some people, their vision of the good life is the secure life. They want security, they want a certain amount of money in their bank account so they feel secure, or they want a relationship that makes them feel secure, they want a job or a place to live that makes them feel secure, and that's fine. For some people, it's their political affiliations. That's sort of their vision of the good life, that their political affiliation would rise and crush the other one. For some people, it's even the religious circles that they find themselves in, that they sort of hide in being or religion, and that's what they think the good life is. For some people, it's education, or. The acceptance of another human being or the approval of a group of people. And, and honestly, for some people, it's just to be noticed. And we put things on our Instagram and on our Facebook and our Twitter and our Snapchat. And we just, I just want somebody to notice me. And just the idea of someone noticing me, that's the good life. And when the right person likes your post for just a second, it's the good life. And your heart rests. There's nothing really wrong with any of those things in and of themselves, of course. But what happens when you build your life on them? What happens when you think that's where life is found? What happens when you seek the living among the dead? Well, when you get it, or when you think you get it, you're always going to need more. That's the way our hearts work, right? We always want more. You need one more dollar, one more experience, one more win, one more moment. We always want more. Or sometimes when we get it, we actually find ourselves more miserable than we ever were, and here's why. The only thing worse than not getting what you think you want is getting it, and then finding out it was never enough to begin with. I remember listening to an interview with Jim Carrey where Jim Carrey said, I wish everybody could get rich and famous just so they would know it's not enough. I remember listening to an interview with Moby, the artist, who said at the height of his career, he wanted to kill himself because he got everything he ever wanted and he still was sad. He still wasn't happy. The most miserable people in the world are the people who got their vision of the good life just to find out I'm still me. I still got my issues and I'm still lacking something. But what about when you lose it or when you foul that thing? You'll lose your joy, you'll lose your way, you'll lose your purpose, you'll lose your life. What you're doing is you're seeking the living among the dead. And what's really sad about this is you think you're free because you're chasing after things, but you're not free. Whatever you're chasing after actually owns you and controls you and you're enslaved to your pursuit. And so we go through our lives pursuing the vision of the good life when the gospel of Jesus Christ says this, Jesus came pursuing you. He made you his vision of the good life. He came to have you. He came to know you. He came to restore relationship between you and the Father. Jesus came pursuing after you. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give you the fullest kind of life that is possible. What did Jesus do to give us that life? Well, the angels told us in our story that we read. They said that Jesus was delivered into the hands of sinful men and he was crucified. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus lived in our place. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived, that we owe to God, that you and I can't live. He died in our place as our substitute sacrifice, and then he rose from the grave to give us full life. Jesus' follower, Peter, years later, wrote these words in 1 Peter 3.18. Jesus Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. Jesus did it once for all time. But he, he never sinned, but he died for sinners like you and I to bring us safely home to God. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said that Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. I love that phrase, that Jesus was raised from the dead on Easter Sunday morning as the first of the harvest. If you're the first of the harvest, guess what that implies? There's more to come. And you know what the rest of the harvest is? It's you and it's me. It's those who place our faith and trust in Jesus. When Jesus walked out of that tomb on Sunday morning, when he rose from the dead, he was guaranteeing for you the ability in him to walk out of your grave, to walk out of your tomb. If Jesus left his grave behind, then it means so can you and I. There's a spoken word artist named Propaganda and he says it this way, I love this. He says, Jesus' death functions as payment. He wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection we all cheered because that means the check cleared. That is what Easter is all about. There's a famous American scriptwriter named David Mamet. One time they asked him, What makes a good story? He said, Every compelling movie, drama, or television show has three common elements in its story arc yes, no, but wait. Yes, no, but wait, think about it. Let me give you some examples. Romantic comedies, who likes romantic comedies? Somebody in the room, a couple people. All right, men, pretend. All right, so, so yes, no, but wait. Romantic comedy, yes, this couple finds each other and they love each other and it's perfect. No, they actually learn something about each other and they realize it's not perfect and now, they're, now their relationship is on the fritz and we gotta endure this musical montage of how sad they are, right? Uh, but wait. They decide just to look past it and accept each other, right? All right, I know you're not all in the rom-coms, so how about sports movies? Anybody like sports movies? Sports movies, this team comes together, they got a vision, they got a mission, they got something to do, yes, they got talent. No, they got problems. They don't all like each other. They don't all get along. There's a better team than them with better money, more money and better coaching, but wait, they pull together and they win superhero movies now I got everybody right superhero movies yes somebody has a new identity they have a new power no there's a villain and they're they have an internal conflict between which who am I and what does this mean about me but wait they defeat the villain and they come to peace with who they are And when you look at the scriptures you see the exact same story arc on two levels a macro level and a micro level. On a macro level, on a 30,000 feet in the air level, here's the story in the scriptures. Yes, God creates a perfect world for people to reign and rule with him and enjoy all of creation. We don't even get three chapters in before it's a big no. We rebel. We sin. We seek the living among the dead. We choose our own ways and we raise our fist to God. But wait. And the Father sends the Son to redeem us and to rescue us and to restore us. And now when we look just at this story, the life of Jesus, the gospel of Luke that we've spent the last 21 weeks in, yes, Jesus is born. Yeah, he grows up. He becomes a wonderful teacher, a mighty healer, a wonderful man. Good Friday, no. He's crucified. He's killed. He's trialed. He's tried unfairly. He's beaten within an inch of his life. He's nailed to a cross. He endures the suffering for six hours in our place. And then Sunday morning comes, and it's the, but wait, but wait. That's what Easter is all about. What Jesus did on Resurrection Sunday sets him apart from every other source of hope. Here's what it means this morning for you, and I'll finish. Jesus can be fully yours You can have all of him and you can have all of the life, the same spirit that raised him from the dead. You can have dwelling within you, just waiting for your day of resurrection. He can be fully yours because of what he did, not because of what you've done. You don't, that's that's one of the unique things about Christianity, don't get it wrong. Christianity is not, here's how you work your way in. Christianity is you couldn't work your way in. You couldn't save yourself. You don't deserve this. You couldn't earn this. Your very best day, it doesn't add up, but Jesus Christ performed in your place, and his perfect performance record is given to those who place their trust fully and solely in him. And so when Jesus did that for us, it means that we can be saved because of his unchanging, unmerited, undeserved work, and not because of our shoddy, inconsistent, up-and-down, good-on-Sunday, bad-on-Monday work. And when Jesus walked out of that tomb on Sunday morning, here's what it means. It means hope is alive. It means darkness hasn't won. It means the good life is here to stay and the good life has a name. His name is Jesus. And it also means this, the story isn't over. Can you imagine what those moments were like between the cross and the resurrection for Jesus' followers? They thought the story was over. But when Jesus walked out of the tomb that morning, it meant... Not only was that story not over, here's what it means. And hear me this morning as I finish. It means your story's not over. It doesn't matter what your story's been up until this point. It doesn't matter the chapters up until this moment. It doesn't matter what you like and what you don't like about your story. Because of what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago on this Sunday morning, we can have hope that your story is not over. He's writing new chapters. He's making everything new. He's restoring. He's reconciling relationship between you and people in your life. He can reconcile relationship, of course, between you and God. This is the hope that we have because of this resurrection story. Jesus, our living hope. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Let's pray.